Okay, this morning we're going to start the book of Esther. Um, but uh, before we get into Esther, we're going to clean up a few odds and ends, loose ends from Nehemiah and Haggai. But uh, we'll get to Esther this morning. So let's open with prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for giving this history of your people and and uh, the history of how you took care of them, Lord. Um, and that we can look at that and see your providence and, and know that you are there even when we can't see you or, or don't notice that you're... Your work, that if we look closely, we can see your hand in the things that surround us. And we just pray that uh, we'll see that in this, in this book of Esther, and uh, that'll be a, something that'll strengthen our faith and help us to uh, depend on you when, when times are tough. We pray, pray that you'll watch over us this morning as we read to give us insight into your word and help us to apply it in our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I mentioned a few odds and ends first. Um, one is from, uh, it's a phrase that I ran into reading through the book of Acts. And after studying Nehemiah, it's like, oh, so that's what this means. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. So this is when uh, the people had been, uh, the, the wealthy ones had, had been taking the poor as slaves in return for uh, loans and had enslaved their brothers. And, uh, and so Nehemiah had gotten them to agree to give them their land back, free them from their slavery. And they took an oath and then Nehemiah added on a curse to that. So uh, if someone would like to read verses 11 through 13 for us. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their houses and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So, may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Okay, so here we see the, the shaking out of the robe. You know, may God just take away everything you own. Just dump all your possessions out. Um, this kind of idea of getting rid of something. Let's turn to Acts. Yeah, clean out the dust. Clean out the dust. Everything, yeah. All the lint. The, everything that they've been collecting in their robes. and It basically means empty your pockets. Let's turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Someone like to read verses 5 and 6 for us. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. 
Okay, so this is at Corinth. You see, he shakes out his garments. This is that same thing that Nehemiah did, the idea of, he's, he's saying, I'm rid of you. I'm dumping you out. I've had enough of, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. I'm not, you know, as you go through the first part of the book of Acts, Paul always went to the synagogues first. Always. And you can read in Romans, you know, he, he says, you know, I wish I was accursed so, so that the Jews might be saved. And this is where, you know, he's been rejected. They've rejected the gospel over and over again. And he finally says, I've had it. I'm shaking you out. I'm going to the Gentiles now. You know, we've seen in other places, it talks about shaking the dust off your feet. That's fairly common. But this is, I ran into this and I thought, okay, I know where this came from. So they, they should know from the book of Nehemiah what he was talking about here. <coughs> okay. Um, one other thing. Uh, we talked about with the, in looking at the book of Haggai, one of the things he said was, you know, he was telling the, the, uh, the older people, he's, he said, this, you're right, this new temple looks like nothing compared to the old one. And the idea there was that he was old enough to have seen it. You know, God didn't just send some young guy who didn't know what the old temple looked like, because then they would have said, well, you didn't know what it looked like. No. Haggai did, and that's the idea there. Um, when you look at Haggai's ministry, how long did it last? We've got four prophecies from him. The first one was in the sixth month. The last one was in the ninth month. Three, four months. Yeah. So he would have been, for him to have seen a temple, he would have been in his 80s. He could not have had a long ministry after that. He was too old. So he had a very short ministry. If you look at the introduction to Zechariah, they estimate that he ministered for like 40 years. So he was a much younger man. Haggai didn't have another 40 years to keep prophesying and preaching. So, so this is consistent with that idea that he was old and had seen the temple. It doesn't specifically say that anywhere. But the, the pieces fit together. Um, so I wanted to bring that up. That was something we didn't have time two weeks ago to cover. <clears throat> and then the last thing that I introduced and mentioned and didn't give you any background on um, is where we were talking about Zerubbabel being God's signet ring, we touched on the fact that during the millennium he would be he would have some kind of divine authority. Now he now he wasn't going to be the king of Israel, even though he was in the um, Davidic line. Um, but I touched on the fact that I think David himself would be resurrected and would be the, the prince of Israel. And I want to go back and look at verses that, that give me that idea. Um, but first, let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. When Jesus came to the, the people in Israel, they called him the son of David. Because there's prophecies concerning the Messiah would come and sit upon the throne of David. Um, 
the promise to Solomon or to David was that his son would sit on the throne forever. So Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, someone leave that as well known. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Okay, very familiar passage. This is Jesus, and it says he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, and would someone like to read verses 5 and 6? This is another, should be a familiar passage. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judea will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Okay, so again... This is Jesus. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And he will be raised up to, to rule. So, you know, why am I saying that David himself is going to be resurrected to sit on the throne? Well, let's look at some passages from Ezekiel. Let's start in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Would someone like to read verses 24 and 25? My servant David will be king over them, and they will have have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Okay. Now this specifically just says David. You know, it doesn't say the son of David or the offspring of David or the, the righteous branch or any of these messianic terms. It says David, my servant David. Um, in verse 24, he's called king. In verse 25, he's called a prince. Let's turn back in Ezekiel to chapter 34. And would someone like to read verses 23 and 24 here? And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and their servant. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Okay, so here, again, it's my servant David. Uh, Here he's called a shepherd, and again he's called a prince. And God says, I will be their Lord, and David will be their shepherd. So, um, again, he's named twice in both these passages. So that's for Ezekiel. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 30. 30. 30, yes. Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah 
chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, and would someone like to read verses 7 through 9? Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, that he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Okay, so it talks about the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the great tribulational period. And it ends with Christ returning and, and basically saving and restoring the nation of Israel. And so that's what it says on that day. Um, they break the yoke of, the, of bondage to the Gentiles, and they will the Lord their God is whom they serve, but also David is here called their king. And God says, I will raise him up. So the idea of raising up, I mean, it could be exalting him, or it could be resurrection. And we know from other passages, there's a resurrection on that day. So David may be raised from the dead to be their king here. Okay, so we have Ezekiel and now Jeremiah, naming just David specifically. Let's turn to Hosea. I didn't really look didn't for, like yeah, the commentaries generally stick with one book. But, okay. I'm just looking at my footnotes, and most of the footnotes in Slava Ryrie, no, life application, say Christ. Right, they refer to Christ. Yeah. Okay. Just... And that's what, yeah, that's why I thought, we better go back over this again. <laughs> I, I don't want to teach heresy. Hosea chapter 3, would someone like read verses 4 and 5? For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Okay, so again, the Lord is their God, and but David is named as king. So we've got Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Hosea all specifically mention David by name. You know, and, and it doesn't have those phrases that we know identify Messiah. So how do we know that it's, it's a, a man David who is resurrected, but not Christ himself who is doing this? So let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 44. find Ezekiel. Okay. We've got about six chapters here in Ezekiel where he describes the millennial temple and the worship service during the millennium. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 44 and would someone like to read verses 2 and 3. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. 
The prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. He is to enter by the way of the portico of the gateway and go out the same way. Okay, so this is the eastern gate. This is the gate through which the Messiah will enter the temple. And it says, Messiah has entered the temple, shut and locked the gate. Nobody else is going to go through that gate. But the prince, who's this prince? The prince will come and eat at the gate. I think they had like a side door or something where he could enter into the gate. So he's honored by being allowed to go to that gate and go in and out that way. Now in Ezekiel, let's turn to chapter 45. Someone would like to read verses 21 and 22. You must not marry widows or divorced women. Nope. Oops. Ezekiel. <laughs> 45, 21. Okay. 45. 21 and 22. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bowl for a sin offering. The pr- that's far enough. The prince will provide a bull for a sin offering for himself. I don't think the Messiah will do that. <laughs> he's sinless. So here we have the prince again offering. He's leading the people. He's not the high priest. He's the prince. He does for all the other people too, not just himself. Right, right. But it includes himself, for himself and the people. Okay, let's go to... Looking just at the next chapter, 46, would someone like to read verses 1 and 2? <coughs> Thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner, of the inner court that faces the east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the seventh day it shall be open, and on the day of the new moon it shall be open. The prince shall enter by the vestibule at, vestibule at the gate from outside and shall take and stand by the post of the gate, the priest shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offering, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Okay, so here's instructions again for the prince, how to offer, how to worship. So putting all the pieces together, I think the prince here is David who has been resurrected. Now, I would like to, like you asked me if I read any commentaries. No, I didn't. (laughs) It's kind of like, I'm not sure how to go about starting to investigate this. Um, Well, that that one verse in Ezekiel really, you know, that really points to, because Christ would not have to sacrifice. No, he would not have to provide offerings. He would not have to come to worship. Um, Another argument, we're not going to look at it, Ezekiel chapter 48 tells how they divide the land up in the millennial period to all the tribes. And there's, a, a lot of, there's an allotment of land for the prince. So again, it, it sounds like someone who's um, not the Messiah. So I think you have to distinguish between the prince and, and the Messiah. So you've got, you know, Jesus comes to rule as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And there's all these passages about the kings of the nations coming and worshiping him there. 
the rulers of the nations. And so it, to me it makes sense that there would be someone under Jesus who has authority over just the nation of Israel, and that would be David. So, so again, um, this, is, this is an idea that needs more investigation, I think. <laughs> but to me, that's the way the pieces fit together. And I thought since we had talked about Zerubbabel um, having some kind of authority in the millennium, that we would go back and talk about that. So my watch has quit, so I need to... Okay. Okay, I'll get my phone up there. Um, okay. We are going to get to Esther. Let's turn to the book of Esther. And let's start by reading through just the first nine verses. So. Joe, you get yeah, to start. It's right after Nehemiah. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> now it took place in the days of Xerxes. Xerxes? Or Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Okay. Ahasuerus, who reigned over the India, reigned from India to Ethiopia. Um, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Okay, there were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen or on silver rings, and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, Mother of pearl and precious stones. Wine was served in olives of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. The drinking was done according to the law. There, were no, there was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Okay. So we have been looking at basically historical books going through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to do Esther because there's a 58-year gap between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. And that's where the book of Esther fits in. So this kind of fits in a chunk of that history. Um, now it might be that Zechariah's ministry overlaps this. I'm not sure if that uh, is true or not, but if he ministered for 40 years, it's very possible. Um, 
this book has, it seems like it might be kind of an odd thing to include in the scriptures. And it's not because of what it does say, but because of what it does not say or does not mention. First, it does not mention God. We'll see his sovereign providence all through it. We'll see his hand at work, but we do not, he does not mention God. There's another book in the Old Testament that does not mention God. Any guesses? Is it Song of Solomon? Yeah. yeah, I didn't even think about that until when the commentaries mentioned that. So we got a couple books in the Old Testament that do not even mention God. Um, what else does it not mention? Jerusalem, Judah, the temple, the law, um, circumcision, you know, all these Jewish things. They're just, they're not mentioned. It almost looks like it's just a totally secular story. But it's still, still there in the law. It's also one of the books that's not referenced in the New Testament. <clears throat> and there's the, <coughs> excuse me, um, most of our oldest copies of, of the Old Testament come from Qumran. What was that? There was a religious settlement there. They had copies of every book of the Old Testament except Esther. So there has been a lot of debate over history about does it belong in the Bible or not? Um, so uh, why, is it, why is it there? Why was it written? Um, and the, the best explanation for that is that it, it explains the Feast of Purim. Purim is the Hebrew word for lots, like you cast lots. And it refers later in the story, Haman cast lots to decide what month he was going to attack the Jews. Well, let's look at that. Let's go to chapter 3. <coughs> chapter 3, if someone likes to read verses 6 and 7. Okay, so he cast lots and it came up on their last month of the year was when he was going to destroy the Jews. And as it turns out, they celebrated on the, either the 14th or the 15th day of that month. It's the month Adar, or Adar, uh, the last month of the Jewish calendar. So they're celebrating on the 14th of the last month what do they celebrate the following month, the first month? The first, the Passover, right. On the 14th of the month. So this is one month ahead of Passover. Um, it's actually this year, uh, 
Purim was on March 16, and Passover was on April 15, 30 days later. So we see that, you know, on our calendar when they were celebrated this year. So this is, you know, this is a celebration that the Jews have that's not mentioned by Moses. It was not established by the law. And so this book gives them an explanation of, you know, why is it uh, part of their calendar? Why is it so important? Um, but one of the things, you know, when we look back at it, you know, we don't really care about their celebration. The main theme, the main thing for us to see is God's providence. Um, God works to control the circumstances to bring about his will. He controls the circumstances around us, often in un totally unseen ways. And so this includes, in this case, blessing not just the individuals, Mordecai and Esther, but also their entire nation, the whole nation of the Jews. Um, so that's the main theme that we will see here. Um, one of the other things, when you, I read through a lot of introductions to Esther, um, they don't know who wrote it and they don't know when it was written. So there was all these arguments about early, late dates and things. Um, probably written by a Jew who lived in Persia because there's a lot of uh, knowledge of what happens in the capital and how things work in, in Persia. They know the customs of the Persians. Um, and they think it was between 450 and like 300 BC. And that's because Alexander attacked Persia in 330 BC and conquered, you know, destroyed, uh, took Susa and destroyed Persepolis, you know, within a decade. And there's no, you know, there's, there's people who say, well, it was written later, but there's absolutely no Greek influence at all in the book. So that kind of goes away. So it's probably before Alexander and the Greek influence came, which would put it at least before 300 BC. Okay. Now, all this introduction stuff, sometimes I feel like, okay, I feel like I'm beating you over the head with history. Uh, but this, this is a historical book, and, and we're going to talk about what some of the other historical... How does it fit into you know, world history? And it, and it does fit. It explains some oddities of the book. So, what is history? History is history. Yes. Um, now, depending on your translation, uh, verse one took place in the days of Ahasuerus. Uh, I think Xerxes. Xerxes. Okay. That's not his Persian name. The commentaries showed his Persian name. I have no idea how to pronounce it. The Hebrews pronounced it Ahasuerus. The Greeks pronounced it Xerxes. So that's where these same guy, Xerxes and Ahasuerus. Um, so he ruled starting in 486 to 465, 21 years. So he was ruler for 21 years. So I want to just review. Let's go through the list of Persian kings and what was going on in Jewish history. So the, the Jews were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. That ended when Cyrus just conquered Babylon. So that was about 
539 B.C. That ended the captivity. And if you remember from Ezra, he's the one that sent the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And he beat who? Pardon? And he beat who? He beat Nebuchadnezzar. Or Babylon. He just went. So it it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was um, Nebuchadnezzar, I think his son. Some, I can't remember the. Did you know? Yeah. Oh, I did. I just wanted to make sure you know who was actually part of it. Yeah. yeah. Cyrus beat just, Babylon, who yeah. was the one that took the captive. Just, just to let you know, I have a blotter on my desk, <laughs> and I have every king written down and dates next to him, because <laughs> I can't remember this stuff either. Some of you have better memories than I do, so I'm throwing this stuff out. So, they started rebuilding the temple under Cyrus, and then stopped almost immediately because of the opposition. Cyrus ruled for nine years. Not a long period, but nine years. So that brought us down to 530 B.C. He was followed by Cambyses, who ruled for eight years. Cambyses is not mentioned in the Bible. I remember that one. So here we've got the temple is not being built. So nothing's happening, basically, through... At least eight, you know, seven or eight years of Cyrus's rule, and then all of Cambyses eight eight years. So it was it was nothing happened for about twenty years. So Cambyses was followed by Darius. So King Darius, Darius the Great, um, and it was in his second year, five twenty B.C. So he took the throne in five twenty two B.C. And in 520 B.C., Haggai and Zechariah came and they started rebuilding the temple. Um, And that's when we have those prophecies. Um, He ruled for 36 years, much longer period than than, uh, Cyrus or uh, Cambyses. Um, In the book of Daniel, it mentions Darius the Mede. That's a different person. Don't confuse Darius the Mede in the book of Daniel with Darius the Great in uh, the book of uh, Ezra. So, he rules 36 years, and he is followed by Ahasuerus Xerxes, who we're going to be looking at in the book of Esther. So, Ahasuerus ruled for 21 years. And again, this fills, there's a as I mentioned before, there's a 58-year gap, so he fits in to that gap. Um, so we're looking now at dates 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And as far as the history we have in the book of Ezra, it's just blank. Um, nothing there. And then finally, uh, we got to Artaxerxes, and he ruled for 40 years. And he is... Uh, Mentioned, we have uh, yeah, I think we can look at it. But um, if you look in Ezra chapter seven, Ezra returned to the land in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. So it was 457 BC. Nehemiah was his cupbearer, and he returned to rebuild the walls in Artaxerxes' twentieth year, thirteen years later. So that's what was going on um, at that time. And that 444 B.C. when Nehemiah returned to build the walls, 
Um, we mentioned that that's also the year that starts Daniel's prophecy of the 77s. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So, going back and looking at history, Ezra begins with Cyrus at the beginning, and then we have Darius in the middle of the book of Ezra. There's this blank spot between 6 and 7 where we have Ahasuerus, and then the end of Ezra and all of Nehemiah is under Artaxerxes. Ezra does mention Ahasuerus. Let's look at Ezra chapter 4. Usually it was one would, yeah, most of them were uh, sons following their fathers. Yeah. Um, although there's, that was not always the case. Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. Now in the reign of Erasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay. If you remember, chapter 4 was kind of odd in Ezra because most of it did not belong historically here. Ezra was giving examples of persecution against the Jews. Because 7 through 20, uh, 22 or 23, I think, 23, is talking about King Artaxerxes, who still was you know, way off in the future. But this is the mention of Ahasuerus. Again, there was an accusation against the Jews. There was some persecution going on. And so that's what the book of Esther is about. It's about persecution. This is probably not the same instance. So Ezra mentions something early, but uh, probably not that same instance. Okay, so that's, that's a bunch of the history, a bunch of the background so we know who Ahasuerus is, uh, know about where he fits into the history between Ezra and Nehemiah. And I apologize if it numbs your brain to go over history like this. <laughs> we have a little more history to go over, but then we'll get into the story next, next time. Um, It does. It, it is interesting to see how the events interact with the secular records and things that we've heard about, uh, famous battles, who fought where, how it affects the story. Yeah. So let's close in prayer. Um, Brian, you want to close for us today? We want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us this history and how it all fits together and how your hand and your love is in all of it. And we want to thank you for this teaching that Daryl's been digging in for us and want to um, bless this next hour to come. May Robert's message be uh, clear, open our hearts and minds for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah.